Good afternoon. My name is Rob Kidd. I am the host today. I'm a reporter from the ODT. Um, on my right is uh, Jared Savage. He's uh, an investigative reporter um, who's racked up uh, a dozen or so journalism awards during his 15-year uh, career, uh, which has seen him working at the Herald, Herald on Sunday, uh, and his first book, Ganglands, uh, charts the rise of methamphetamine in New Zealand. Rom Reviewer called him the uh, Pablo Escobar of meth reporting. The, uh, Very accurate. Uh, no, that reviewer was Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Steve Bronius, on my left, uh, is the author of 10 books and also a multi-award winning uh, writer too. Uh, he writes for The Herald, uh, edits Newsroom's literary section uh, and is life president of the uh, Hamilton Press Club. Uh, his recently published Missing Persons uh, is another banger, uh, described by one reviewer as classic Bronius. That also is me. <laughs> um, both of you have obviously covered crime for, for some years now. What about the genre, reporting on crime, keeps you uh, interested and keeps you writing about it? Jared? Well, there's just so many good stories to, to be told, so it keeps me gainfully employed, I suppose, is probably the, the, the first and foremost. But uh, it's, it's quite an incredible thing when you're writing on crime and, you know, we've got the police scanner in the newsroom, so you might first hear, um, you know, something's happened and then you go out to the scene and then, you know, there'll be a police investigation, so you're trying to get around your sources and find out what's going on and then there might be an arrest and you can trace it all the way through to, to a, a trial in a courtroom. It's quite an amazing process to be a, to be a part of that and to be disclosing um, information to the public. And I, I just find it really interesting and, and fascinating and, and getting invited into people's world uh, and often at one of the most sort of painful or stressful times in their lives is, is quite a privilege. And, and we've got to be really careful with how we, we treat those people and, um, and tell their stories. But um, I just, I mean, to, to answer your question in, in one line, I just, I just find it fascinating. Um, I think our readers do too. Steve, what about you? Obviously, it's sort of fertile ground for you, crime. What, what is it that draws you in and, and you think makes good reads for, for the people reading your work? One of the reasons I guess I do it is that it's because I don't drive. Um, I can't get around. So if uh, my story is set in a room, I'm real happy about that. <laughs> And I like rooms. I live a pretty slow, patient, reptilian kind of life. And I like just hanging on to the walls of rooms, including courtrooms. And they are fascinating places. And I just plant myself on the wall there with my tendrilled, webbed feet and watch everything that goes on. And no one moves, no one can go until the judge tells them to go. And I just stay there and watch uh, some of the worst moments of people's lives um, being described in forensic detail. And it's very sad. It's very melancholy. And sometimes it's very funny. Uh, that's just the way life works out, even when it's deadly serious. There's always a humour there whether it's a black humour or just an incidental comedy going on. And I think people 
do seem to be very attracted to crime writing and crime stories. Netflix wouldn't exist without it. Newspapers wouldn't exist without it, really. And the reason we publish these stories and we write about them as journalists is because people like to read about them. And I don't think that's a, um, I don't think that's a trivial or sordid exchange. I think people like to read about crime stories uh, not because it's a voyeuristic opportunity. Um, there's a really disgraceful page online at Tiara, the sort of National Library One Encyclopedia of New Zealand, and it's written by some snob at Waikato University talking about um, media reporting on crime and it's a voyeuristic pursuit and the public should be ashamed for reading it. I say no, I don't think the public should be ashamed for reading it. I think that we're attracted to crime stories in this country because we want to know what goes on in our community. And I think there's a huge amount of empathy which goes on when we read these stories and I, I suppose the, the, the standard for this would be two or three years ago with a, a really sad tragedy of uh, Grace Mullane. If you remember this, the story began when she went missing and her, her face was on the front page of every paper and uh, the beginning of every news bulletin on TV. Where is Grace? And everyone in this country was just hoping like hell she would be found and she would be okay and she w her body was found and it wasn't okay. Um, and I think this was uh, you know, the way we felt about that was genuine sorrow and concern for her, and I think that carried over into the um, reading about her trial. So um, the same reason that people read true crime stories is the same reason we write about them. They have an emotional resonance and an emotional depth to them. And, and obviously you talked about that particular case being a tragedy and the forensic detail that is discussed in, in criminal trials. Uh, and you hear blow by blow, literally, uh, of how someone's lives come to an end. Mm. Probably one of the questions that you both get asked is how do you cope as a person hearing these trials and about these tragedies all the time? Yeah, people do ask that. And um, I think earlier in my career, I didn't really think about it too much. You're sort of so involved and, and just work and being professional and, and filing on time and being accurate and, and doing the best that you can and, and treating everybody with, you know, with respect, I suppose, that you kind of don't necessarily take too much care of yourself, I think, at times. You, you don't really, I think it's like, it's not like there's one thing that just like kind of breaks you, but I think over time there's like a slow erosion and, and you sort of, now that I'm a bit older, I'm a bit more like, oh yeah, well, I do need to take a break or I might not do that particular kind of reporting for a little while and, and, and look look elsewhere. Yeah, so I haven't, you know, I've done a lot of stories about deaths of, of children um, and you know, in, in particular, like, a lot of the stuff-ups that might happen with, you know, social workers or the police, you know, in, in the lead-up to the death. And I, I did that for a long time because I was quite passionate about it. You know, and I still am, but now that I've got my own kids, I do try and steer away from that a little bit. And it's probably... Not, it's probably not a conscious decision, but it's probably just something that you, you can maybe do as a, a self-protection um, mechanism. But um, look, you know, we've got some in New Zealand. We've got some incredible crime reporters who I don't really think the general public understands the stress and pressure that the people are under. You know, day to day. You know, 
for weeks, months, you know, years, and then you know the, the next big thing happens. And um, so, yeah, I think there's probably more awareness now of you know mental health and, and looking after yourself. And but that's probably only sort of crept into newsrooms in the last few years, mm. I think. Yeah. Steve, do you feel like your soul's been gradually blackened, or? <laughs> no, I enjoy it. I look forward to it. I wake up in the morning of a murder trial and go, great. Can't wait for this. Um, there are some strange uh, uh, moments which do carry over into your life. Uh, there was a summer before the uh, retrial of Mark Lundy, which both Rob and I attended. And in that summer, while we were waiting for the trial to begin, Mark Lundy had been released. And he was staying out with his great supporter, a guy called Jeff Levick in Kumu in Auckland. And I would go out there and I would go through various files that Jeff had kept on this case just for reading and hang out with Mark Lundy, have the odd sandwich or a glass of beer or so forth. And um, that was a strange and fascinating exercise. I didn't like Mark Lundy. I didn't think he was a very nice person. I thought he was vainglorious and belligerent. However, I thought there was a distinct possibility that there had been a shocking miscarriage of justice and that a man whose wife and child had been slaughtered, it was possible by somebody else. And for that person to be blamed for it just seemed beyond belief. So it's possible. And anyway, there was one particular um, moment there where I was going home, about to go home, and he said... Um, How's your daughter? And Minka uh, was, I think, about uh, seven at the time, which was roughly the age of Amber Lundy, who had been horribly killed. And I told, her, told him how old she was. And he said, when you go home, uh, can you give her a hug for me? <laughs> um, I thought all things considered, I wouldn't. <laughs> and, I, and I guess, on, slightly on that, that sort of cultivation of sources and, you know, having somebody speak to you, how, what, what techniques do you use or, or how have you found it best to keep people sweet, cultivate those sources and, and have people tell your story, their story? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not the best person to ask about that. I'm terrible at that sort of thing. Uh, I used to have a contact book and it was completely blank. Um, whereas Jared, is, uh, he's, he's, the, he's the man at this. Uh, uh, I, he's continually phoning up from his office, which is basically his car. Uh, he drives around Waikato and the Bay of Plenty and parts of Auckland meeting strange people in roadside cafes getting information. Perhaps you'd like to talk to us yes. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I hasten to add, often I will tell my wife where I'm going, going just in case I, I don't come back for a while. But, um, oh, look, I think, um, and that's the other thing, which in terms of behind the scenes of newspaper reporting, um, people might be interested in, but like, journalists are only as good as their sources. We need people to tell us things that are going on so that we can look into them. And um, in this day and age, it's actually really difficult because 
Uh, every government agency, every local council, every DHB has an army of PR people whose job is to control the message and to, you know, basically control the narrative. And they don't really want pesky reporters talking to their staff in case they find out things that are embarrassing for them. So, the ODT where Rob works is across the road from from the court. Similar in Auckland, so when I was a younger reporter, the Herald building um, was basically across the road from the district court. So. I just cruise over there and, and you know, you rifle through the charge sheets. That's the it's a document which outlines everyone's name, address, what they've been charged with. And every day these are refreshed because there's, you know, dozens if not hundreds of people coming through. And some of them are really boring, like just drink driving or, you know, nothing nothing that notable. But sometimes there's some really interesting and, and quirky things. And, um, you know, if you do that enough, you, you the court stuff begin to see you as a trusted face or a friendly face and they might say, and Rob knows this, you know, they might say, oh, you know, you need to get down to courtroom two now or come back at 2.15 and, and just by being there all of a sudden, you, you know, you're hanging around the lawyers and the cops and, you know, the criminals as well and so you, you start to become a familiar face and then people might say, you know, once they work out that you're not going to put their name in the paper necessarily or, or blurt something out um, in the paper which they're not quite ready for, you build up that trust and rapport, then all of a sudden, you know, you've got this relationship with people, um, you know, the odd document might fall off the back of a truck or they might say, hey, look, you need to you need to be in this, this, this court case is happening soon or there might be an arrest in this, in this ongoing investigation soon. So, yeah, you just, you build up these relationships with people and, and some of them are, I wouldn't, hear, I wouldn't say they're friends, but, but some of them are, you know, and we all go and meet them for a coffee or a beer and, and we'll talk about everything, you know, and often, you know, there'll be something that I particularly want to ask them, but I'll talk about everything else until we get to that point. I'm like, oh, what's happening with that case? What's going on there? And they might say, well, you didn't hear it from me, but, you know, and I think, um, I think, I think that's a, it's a really, um, you know, I'm, a te I'm not a great writer, I'm not a, I'm not a brilliant interviewer, um, and all the other skills that you need to be to be a reporter, but I, I do place a lot of pride and effort into, um, into those relationships, and also, more, most importantly, maintaining integrity. So if someone says to me, look, I'm going to tell you something so that you have the, the wider context, but you can't publish it, you know, um, until I, you know, basically until I say so, you know, you've, you've, if someone trusts you to do that, you can't then go back and write it up and put it on the front page. You need to be patient and hold that information and, and then work it to a point where, you know, maybe there's another way of, of telling that same story, and it's really important um, you know, people don't have a high opinion of, of reporters in terms of trustworthiness, but I think that's actually, um, the good reporters, that's actually the, the one thing that they can really need to hang on to and, and um, it pays dividends in, in the long run. And probably on the other side of that, keeping, keeping people sweet and, and looking after your sources, um, there's the, the subjects that you write about, and, and the same with you, Steve, you've probably pissed some people off, fair to say. And, you know, Jared, dealing with meth overlords and, and people doing multi-million dollar deals, how do, you, how do you deal with that? Have you had any um, feedback, let's say, from, from <laughs> people who you may have, you may have uh, inadvertently insulted? Well, you certainly have. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you have a phone call yesterday? I, I don't know, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's not about me, Tom. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the people do come back, and you know, demand to know why you have written such and such a thing. 
and um, I, I don't really have any satisfactory answers, you know, uh, when I write these things. I'm not writing them with uh, the uh, with the people in mind, you know. I'm just writing these things, thinking of them as pieces of prose with hopefully good sentences and a good narrative, and that they are responsible and that they do show some sort of concern and empathy for everybody involved, not just the victims, but the perpetrators. And um, I guess that's just why I, I just sort of think about people generally, is that people are complicated, and that no one is any one thing. Uh, even the worst person, like Jesse Kemp's and the murderer of Grace Mullane, uh, does have some okay qualities uh, they were just entirely absent at the moment of her death. Um, so when people phone up or get through to me uh, in some which way, they're generally sort of disappointed because I don't have that much to say. You know, I just say, oh, well, I, I wrote it, and I think sentence seven uh, has some resonance. Um, <laughs> it's just literature to me, really. I suppose for you, Jared, the stakes may be slightly higher with hurting someone's feelings or describing them as whatever it might be. But you know, some of the the people that that you write about um, have huge sums of money uh, at, at stake. Have you ever worried that you might be a target of of sort of retribution? Well, well I am now. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean, it's. I think often by the time that I'm writing about them, whether they're organised criminal figures or gang members, or, like the damage is done. Like the, I'm, I'm coming into the point where the, their life is already kind of perilously close to being, you know, um, spending a long time in jail because the police have done a good job, and I'm writing about that. Um, so I think they probably see it as. Um, me doing my job, like they're doing their job, which is to be a criminal mastermind, and the police are doing their job, which is to, to catch them, and my job is to write about it and just sort of, you know, I really try and put the wider, con not just reporting on facts of what's happened, but the wider context of what it means to society r right now and, um, uh, and how things have changed over time. So I haven't, um, I don't personally worry about it too much in terms of retribution. Um, I have had a lot of angry phone calls from people, um, Often they, in terms of like that organised crime side of things um, that I get into into the book, often they're they're not so worried about that. I think that some people probably take partial pride in it or a notoriety. Um, some people I've heard were upset that they weren't in the book, <laughs> um, and that's been fed back to me. Um, sometimes they might be a little bit annoyed that. Um, you know, the, their version of events wasn't articulated as well as they would have liked, but often it's because, you know, they've been convicted. So the, the jury have chosen another, you know, the, the police version often. Um, I think the harder one to deal with is, um, and say if it's a murder case or some, or some sort of abuse case, um, where people, like, you know, family, and I understand why, families of victims often don't want anything to be published about these very, you know, these are very private moments of anguish, the, the loss of a loved one in terrible circumstances. So they don't see why it should be published in any, in any way, shape, or form, let alone what you've, whether your written's accurate or not. They just don't want anything out there, and, and I get that. But we live in a country where 
the court system is open um, for very good reason to make sure that um, you know justice is seen to be done, and and then if you know if the police have done something dodgy, that we can that can be you know ventilated in court, and, and all sorts of reasons for why we don't have court um, behind closed doors. And it can be difficult to explain it to someone to say, look, I'm really sorry that this has caused you more anguish. Um, me writing about the death of your of your loved one or your friend. Um, all I can do is be as accurate and fair and balanced as possible. Um, I'd love to get your, you know, your side of the, you know, your version of events later on at, at the right time. But um, I, I think having those conversations um, are, are difficult because, yeah, like Steve says, we're doing it because we we kind of have to. That's our job. And as long as we're not make, not making any mistakes. We can't really resolve from that, um, and it's, it is hard to have that conversation with someone who's rightfully emotionally upset at that time. So yeah, it's hard. And, and upsetting sometimes for people is is that moment when they're confronted by a reporter and um, and missing persons. You obviously have did your fair share of cold calls to to people who had suffered some sort of tragedy. Mm. How do you approach that? Where you where you cold call somebody knowing that if they speak to you, that you're going to get probably a fantastic story, mm. but the work that it would require to, to convince them is, is probably quite great. Mm. Um, I think really uh, one of the lessons of journalism is that um, people want to talk to you. Um, people want to tell their stories. They, they do want to share what's happened and what they think. And... They do want some sort of way of communicating an understanding of their grief or their suffering or something terrible which has happened. And they do want to talk to you. And I also think one of the lessons that is that uh, it doesn't matter which journalist is there. Uh, it doesn't matter whether, whether it's John Campbell or someone from you know, the Waimati advertiser. They want to talk to somebody and... Um, they will say much the same thing. And you've just got to, uh, one of your roles, I think, is to sit there and listen and shut up and just listen to them and occasionally ask questions. And, and this is sometimes one of the hardest things in, 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 in particular stories is, um, is just to entirely realise that the grief or the suffering or the misery or the anguish that they're talking about belongs to them. The story that I'm trying to, that I'd like to illustrate that is that in one of these stories in the book Missing Persons, um, I was really attracted to the story about a young man who had gone missing uh, between Rotorua and Taupo. He's still missing. You would think that he's dead in a very unpleasant way. And I went to interview his parents, who were estranged from each other, but they came back to, to talk to me together. And it was harrowing. It was really, really harrowing. And it was, there was one point in the interview, and it was a long interview. I think I was there for about three or four hours. So there was one point where it reached a pitch of, of, of grief, um, I just thought, I can't take this anymore, you know. Um, I was just sitting there with very glassy eyes, uh, wanting to start to howl and to cry because it was so, um, it was, uh, you know, the sympathy for these people and what they'd gone through was so keen. 
and what they were saying. And of course, the object was not to do that, was not to invade their grief. And I finally sort of managed to, to bring it down. Um, I think I started thinking about something else. I think I started thinking about the English football results. <laughs> um, to innovate myself against what they were saying and then to re-listen again. And after I'd reached that point, I was okay. I was in no danger of taking away from their story. But yeah, it's a it's a it's an emotional it's an emotional um, it's an emotional job that we have the three of us, really. And it is easy to um, it is easy to abuse it. Uh, you do fall you do find yourself falling into cynical practices, um, but hopefully you can overcome those and generally act with some kind of decency. Hopefully, Jared, I think we've we've done door knocks. Simultaneously, we're working for different companies. But oh, yeah, yeah. how do you, when when you were walking up to that door and you know that your um, the person on the other side of it potentially is um, holds the key to a fantastic story, how do you approach that? You know, how do you not get put off by them saying, "Ah, oh, not today." So just to explain, like what a door knock is. So it's a, it's Juno jargon, I suppose, but it, it literally just knocking on someone's door. So say there's something's happened, there's uh, some news is broken and you quickly sort of identify someone at the centre of it and we need to speak to that person to get that interview. So you, it's, it's, a, you know, it's literally walking up to the door, knocking on it and explaining who you are and will this person please you know, give, give an interview, talk to you. And um, I struggle with them still. Um, it's, um, it's, you know, in some ways it's an invasion of privacy. But look, there's three, there's three responses that you get. And it comes back to what Steve said before about expecting that people should will actually want to talk. I think if you go in thinking, this person's never going to talk to me, um, then you're probably not going to get it. So there's three responses. There's uh, the big angry F off, like they're really angry and they don't want to speak to you ever or any other journalist and they just sort of hate all the media attention. And, you know, there's probably been potentially two or three other journos Knocking at old mate Rob Kidd's been knocking on the door for six six hours, you know. You know so by the time they by the time they see you, they're really angry. So there's the big F off. The second option is the the not right now. So you can tell they do kind of want to talk to you, but at that point, um, they're just not quite ready. So that's we've got to play the long game, and you sort of um, you, know, you might give them your card, you know, or a note that you've written to say, look, here's my number, and look, do you mind if I check back in with you in a week or two? And you know, and probably the third option is just come on in, come on in. I want to tell you something. I want to get it off my chest and tell everybody. And I'm, I'm annoyed about what's been written so far in the Herald and or stuff or wherever. And I, I want to get our version of events out. And um, I think you've just got to, in terms of stealing yourself for it. Um, some people are just brilliant at it. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Caroline Mingye up in Auckland, is just incredible at getting people to to open up and talk to her. Well, I guess when I was a bit younger and doing it, um, you turn up with this frightened little puppy boy face, you know, and people feel sorry for you, I reckon, like, because you know that, um, you know, you should be feeling sorry for them, not the other way around, but you kind of know that, that I think they sense that you're desperate because you're going get to your, get your ass kicked if you go back to the office without a story. Uh, it doesn't really work for me these days with uh, all the hair falling out, but um, I think if you're just presenting, presenting a very friendly, professional face to it each time, no matter what the response is, 
I, I think it'll hold you in, in good stead. Um, and I'm always amazed. I'm, I'm still amazed at, at the graciousness of people to invite you into their home, mm. Um, mm. put the kettle on, give you a give you an Anzac biscuit, and um, and then proceed to tell you about the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And, yeah. and it's you know it's obviously happened. You've had successful ones, and you have too. Steve, is the is the one that stands out where you're walking into someone's house thinking, why are they letting me in here? Why are they talking to me? Is that feeling of just like this is hugely surreal? Can I answer that vicariously? Um, Jared is quite right to invoke the name of a reporter called Caroline Meng Yi and her ability to attain people's trust. There was a famous murder case in Dunedin. And one of the uh, people who the media wanted to speak to was the um, father of the accused. And he had resisted the door-knocking attempts of generations of journalists. Sweet little Jared Savage. <laughs> no. Charismatic Rob Kidd. Nah. And then Caroline went down and she followed this chap in his car back to his home. And he drove into his garage and the garage door went up. So she stood outside and said, hi, I'm Caroline Mingyi. I know you've been hassled for this a million times, but can you speak to me? And he said, no, F off, and pressed the button on the garage door. And as it was coming down, she stepped forward and put her foot out. And of course, that automatically wings <laughs> the garage door back. And this sort of ridiculous comedy went back and forth of the door banging and opening. And the poor devil just, you know, couldn't really get rid of her. And after about... Ten swings of this garage door in a suburban street in Dunedin, he finally caved in and she attained his trust and got a terrifically good interview with the father of one of New Zealand's worst murderers who will be incarcerated for the remainder of his days, one would think. But yes, uh, I, I don't have a story of my own. I'd rather vicariously live through Caroline's <laughs> and the swinging garage door of Dunedin. It sounds like it's worth a sore foot anyway. Jared, have you got any really surreal ones where you just uh, couldn't believe it? What had happened was, so can't you, does anyone remember when the war medals were stolen from the Waiura War Museum? And it was like these two, and they were professional thieves. Like, And I think between them they had 400 convictions and it was this saga for months because the police were investigating it and... Um, and uh, what happened was is that one of these, uh, the, the medals were missing. There's about 95 medals, including some Victoria Crosses, um, you know, massive news. And this uh, quite staunch headhunter gang member managed to basically get his hands or control over where some of them were hidden. So you've got the two thieves uh, who are not gang members, and then this gang member in prison, Mount Eden Prison, um, had some sort of connection with them, said to the police, if you, and he was on serious drugs charges, and he said, if, you, if I get you some of these medals back, will you give me bail? And, um, and they agreed to it. So it all came out, and this guy, Danny Crichton, DC, he's a big guy, he's got a big tattoo in the middle of his head, very scary guy. And he was in court, and this happened, and I, I was sitting beside one of his supporters, and I just slipped this guy my card and said, get, you know, tell him to give me a call. So that two days later, I'm cooking dinner for my wife, and I get this phone call, someone didn't know, hello. 
There's this Jared here. He goes, oh, it's DC. I was like, who? It's DC, it's Danny. Danny Crichton. You, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, g'day, Danny. What had happened was, because he had done this deal, other members in the cr- criminal fraternity thought he was a narc, which is, or a rat, you know, like that he had snitched, snitched them out, which wasn't quite the case. He'd basically arranged for this. He hadn't pointed the finger at who was actually responsible. But he was getting heat within the criminal fraternity as to, and his standing in the criminal fraternity was getting lowered because of this. He says, oh, I want to I want to talk to you about this and get my story out there because everyone thinks I'm this dirty rat. And I was like, I was like, okay, that's all good. So um, what's, you know, where are you? And, you know, so I went out and tootled off to his house on Mount Albert Road, which is one of the main sort of arterial roads in Auckland um, near the St. Luke's shopping centre. And uh, this was one of the occasions where I let my boss and my wife, my other boss, my wife, know where I, where I, where, where, where I was going and what, how long I'd be there. I knock on the door and it was just a pretty standard suburban house and, and someone answered the door, one of his prospects probably, or gang minions, and said, oh, look, I'm here to see Danny. Oh, come on, follow me. Wind our way through this house. I'm thinking, oh my God, where am I going? Into this back room, very dark, like, it sounds like a garage, like at the back of the house. And I was just like, oh. So he's sitting there at this table. And I was like, good day, Danny. And there's another guy sitting there who I didn't recognise, but this wild man of here. And I was like, oh, okay, he didn't say who he was. And I was like, okay, like, Right, so we sit down. Take, you know, I said, "Daddy, is this all on the record?" He's like, "Yep, sweet as." Okay, cool. And so I put the put the tape recorder on. And he proceeds to tell me this chapter of verse about what went on. It was a brilliant interview, and uh, and he was basically he he was wanting to address the the narc sort of rat allegation, uh, and then he started telling me about how somebody was had been shooting at him, and I was like, "This is amazing. This is good." So he started writing it all down. <laughs> this went on about forty five minutes. So this is brilliant, and. Um, and then, of course, and then, he, and then he, and the other guy didn't say anything. He just sort of sat there looking at me the whole time. It was kind of unnerving because he was kind of a wild look in his eye. And, um, and then Danny goes, oh, well, you know, and, and Waha will tell you. And at that point, my, sort of, my blood froze because I realised who it was, and it was Waha Safiti who, was, um, who features in the book now. But he, he is one of New Zealand's most notorious <laughs> criminals, rap sheet as long as my arm, um, long-time bank robber, one of the first meth cooks in New Zealand, connected to absolutely everybody. And um, I just sort of froze and thought, oh, shit, I really better not get this story wrong now. <laughs> like, but it was actually, it was actually, um, it was actually ended up fine. But that was one, that's one that sticks out. I, I quite enjoyed that. It was good. Yeah. Uh, of course, <laughs> it's, it's one thing getting the interview and another thing writing a story for the paper and yet another thing writing a book. What... Steve, you're a veteran, is that fair? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a veteran. What is the process that, that you go through writing the book and the process that, went, that you went through for missing persons and how has that sort of been refined over the years? Oh, it's a sort of refined suffering. <laughs> it's an uh, increasing sense of self-loathing. Yeah, it's a laugh a minute. <laughs> <laughs> writing is difficult. All writing is difficult. But you're led on by a, a, a kind of a, mira- a mirage that you see ahead of you, and these ripples in the air might indicate a, um, a lovely pond surrounded by trees, and that pond with the lovely trees is a good sentence, and you're directed towards that. There's a possibility that one will come along 
and that's repeated for months on end, that you're chasing this mirage that a good sentence will come along at some stage and you uh, have to have faith, which is very easily tested, that you live in hope. That's a very um, optimistic description of writing, isn't it? <laughs> you know, some people, some writers say, you know, chuck it all on the page, then spend the rest of the time editing. Like, how do you... You know, approach that writing process. Oh no, 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 no! It's a, uh, it's just a sentence at a time, really. Uh, it goes from beginning to end. I don't edit at the end. Um, everything is in its place. Uh, it's a hopefully very tidy and meticulous arrangement of sentences, and um, one is written after another. And they, yeah, they're not, they're not rewritten and big chunks of them aren't taken out and put somewhere else. Uh, it just goes from beginning to end. And I'm still not sure whether it's a, uh, it's a very slow process, which it seems to be, or it's actually quite speedy. Um, I, I, am, uh, I am sort of known as quite a fast writer. Um, I'm not sure really what goes on. I don't sort of keep an eye on the time. I just sort of get completely uh, enveloped in the story and the difficulties of where it goes to with each sentence and trying to make them, um, wanting to make them anyway, uh, very detailed and very authentic and um, possibly having some lyrical qualities to them. I'm a fast thinker, but I'm not a deep thinker. And that if you give me weeks and weeks and weeks on a particular project, I'll just hand in the most dunderheaded thing you could imagine. Um, but if you give me a day, I'll write something not too bad uh, because my best thinking is done speedily. You make it sound sort of fairly sort of torturous. What's the, what's the, what's the main, the, the payoff for you? What, what gives you the satisfaction? Well, that it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> like running a marathon moment. <laughs> I'm concise. Uh, Jared, obviously this is... Um, your Ganglands is your first book. Yeah. Um, how did you find the process? Oh, similar to Steve's throwing in like the gl a global pandemic, which meant that you know my entire days were spent chasing my children, trying to do my herald job, uh, and then trying to write at night time. So um, yeah, it was it was interesting because I'd never done it before. Um, you know, in a newspaper, if you're writing a news story. You might be lucky to get 700 words. Um, if you're writing a feature at the end of a case, it might be 3,500 if, if you're lucky. Like, that's pretty rare. So to, the challenge of writing an 80,000-word book uh, in six months in your spare time um, was a little bit daunting. But I was kind of lucky. I wasn't starting from scratch. So um, Alex Headley, who's my publisher at HarperCollins, he rang up and said, oh, Look, I've seen some of your stories about you know gangs and organised crime. Is you know, do you think there's a book in it? And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I was thinking about it. I was like, yeah, there probably is. Like, not one story, but if we get there's, a, there's the the big story is the story, the evolution of organised crime in New Zealand, starting from the late 90s, early 2000s when meth first turned up, and this escalation to the, the point we are now, where um, you know, we're literally we've got Mexican cartels and, and, and DEA agents running around New Zealand. So I wanted to tell that big story, the big overarching story, but the way I've done it in the book is in 12 different chapters, each showing each step in that escalation. So I sort of, once I broke it down into chunks, and 12 chapters, six months, that's a chapter every two weeks, basically, 
Um, I was lucky that I had a lot of my rec I'd written about a lot of these cases. Um, so I had my notebooks, I had all the court judgments, I had transcripts of interviews, I had transcripts of um, evidence in court. I'd ring up my sources and say, hey, look, oh, you know, I've forgotten this bit, what can you tell me? Um, so I, I kind of just got on a roll, really, and, and just kept on, kept on cranking. And like Steve, was just really relieved when, <laughs> when, when, it, was, when it was done. And, um, but I guess for me, it was the opportunity to expand on that world, which I'd sort of actually invested a fair amount of time in, um, you know, to, to sort of piece together and link together a lot because all the cases are connected, all the people are connected, or there's a, you know, there'll be a, a change in the legislation or government policy, which has, you know, had un unintended consequences. So we kind of been able to weave in those things into the facts of a case, as well as telling, you know, essentially um, a modern history in some ways of what's gone on was, was really, um, that was quite enticing to me to have yeah. that opportunity. What's the best compliment you've received? Oh, um, I actually got a really nice text message uh, from a contact of mine um, how do I describe him without? Incredible investigator. He hated journalists and reporters and the media and is very gruff and black and white and um, it took me a long time to gain his trust and his insights. And he sent me a text message the other day saying, I hadn't heard from him for months saying, hey, just you know, read the book, really great, getting lots of feedback um, from it. Um, across all spectrums, the criminal world and police and just random punters. And he said even detectives that he's interviewing now who want to join, you know, join his particular squad were referencing Gangland saying, well, we read the book and we want to, we want to get into it, we want to investigate this. I thought, that's a, that's a pretty good compliment. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then on the other side, I've had some pretty serious criminals ring me and say it wasn't, wasn't that bad, you know. <laughs> so it wasn't that bad. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that's, you know. That's probably about as good a compliment as you're going to get from yeah. uh, people in the criminal fraternity. The fact that they didn't threaten me in a veiled way was uh, was a compliment enough. Yeah. And, and and lastly, before we go on to questions, Steve, what I know you don't read your own reviews, but what's uh, do you put any stock in the comment and in the compliments that people might give you uh, after reading your books? No. <laughs> and questions. Uh, yeah. Can we? We've got about ten minutes for questions. Um, who are your favourite? fictional crime writers and why and do you think about them when you're writing about real crimes? Yeah, um, my all-time favourite is, uh, and I did read her actually during the writing of this book of missing persons, uh, as a woman called Patricia Highsmith, as an American writer, a, um, known for her, uh, her misogyny and her loathing of both genders. <laughs> <clears throat> and um, an incredibly, uh, a terribly, terribly good writer. And I do learn quite a lot, uh, I think, from reading fictional crime. It, certainly it, it, they write about characters, I think. And uh, I think that's an influence maybe on the way that I write as a, as a, as a journalist and as a, an author of crime, true crime books and writing about the people in them. Uh, you do approach them to some degree as characters, I guess. Mm, good question. Have you ever come across a story that's just too sordid to actually want to tell? No, oh, every day. Just generally speaking, um, 
the a lot of the sex cases and, and particularly child sex cases when we're writing stories about it in the paper like you know no one wants to read most of that over over your breakfast you know so you need to like use a code basically in, in terms of or you and so there's some often horrific details which will never see the light of day in terms of publication um and you know, probably rightfully so. I mean, even even the cases that do get reported, um, the reader doesn't know as much as as, as we do. Um, uh, and there's all sorts of crazy cases that not not too sorted to tell. But yeah, it's you feel kind of gross. <laughs> you know, you feel kind of gross, and so therefore you don't. Yeah, you, I don't think the end product is ever as salacious as as the things that we might read or see. Um, I haven't really answered your question properly. Some of them, some of them are just like, it's not news. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just sort of like, well, you know, it's um, it's that that's your family squabble, and the fact that you guys are alleging this and that other thing is not really, it's not really news. So I think I think it's it's often like that's the the, the framework that you got to put on it. Not is it too sorted, but like is it actually news? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. To, to your question, I guess I'm thinking of a couple of things, and one is, um, Jared's mentioned the, the, the autopsy photos. When you go to murder trials as a journalist, um, among the documents uh, which are kept by the prosecution is a, a photo booklet, and this booklet tells its own sort of story and pictures, really, and it will include the uh, photographs of the... Uh, the deceased and the room where it happened. In the photo booklet in the trial of Jesse Kempson for the murder of Grace Mullane, um, the photos that were included, um, I don't think any of them were ever published, mm. really. And that includes the... Um, when you say sordid, you know, with... Uh, uh, and apropos the Grace Mullane trial, um, they came up in sentencing when they were looking to, to, to impose a prison sentence on this guy. They came up with not entirely a new, but a very rarely used um, definition of law. And this was depravity. You don't hear a lot of it, really, in the high courts. It's seldom used. It's extreme examples of, of callousness. And they did have a few precedents with the Grace Mullane thing. And this was all concerned, of course, to, to do not so much. This is what made it kind of unique, really. Um, the horror of this killing was not so much the killing, but what happened afterwards and the disposal of the body. And anyway, and, 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 and you know, how he'd run his fussy and pathetic little errands going to the warehouse to buy a suitcase. And, yeah, one of the uh, photographs in the booklet was of the suitcase uh, that he'd bought at the warehouse. And just this, just this everyday average uh, object, which many of us probably have in our own houses, took on a, uh, a resonance of real horror that you would buy that for that particular purpose. Um, so that was kind of sordid. But you have to confront these things, I think, as journalists and where, where you think it's within the, the realms of good taste, uh, I think you should write about them. And there are lots of things which are outside of that realm, and perhaps you shouldn't write about them. And I, I am confronted in, in 
crime fiction, which doesn't have those sorts of rules and parameters of, of, of something which is put before a family in a newspaper in the morning and does go into some... Does go into, fiction allows more explicit detail about gory deaths than journalism or, or, or most true crime um, non-fiction does. And um, that's interesting. I don't know if it's disturbing. It can be sometimes. Uh, the attention to forensic detail of a forensic attack which is described in a novel, which you would never write as a, as a journalist or as a true crime writer. Well, I don't think you would. And yet um, it's almost expected in a, in a, in a crime novel. It's not, not, I don't know if it's a double standard, but it sure is interesting and it makes what we do um, a lot more um, dignified perhaps, and has more decorum than fiction, which can go into dark places of human activity that we do not go to. Well, all that remains is to say thank you very much for everyone, uh, to everyone for coming. Thanks. <laughs>